Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Bloodthirsty Times, a true crime podcast. My name is Octavio. It's your boy, Will. And I'm Emily. This week, we are going back to Mexico to talk about a sad reality for many, many women in the country. And that is the act of being kidnapped. So keep those blindfolds on and join us in these bloodthirsty times. Like I said, kidnapping in Mexico is so common. And even though it's pretty much an everyday occurrence and has been something that the Mexican people are almost desensitized to, it's still an incredibly traumatic event in the kidnapped person's life and is a scar that will never go away. And that's something we have to remember. The criminals are literally tearing these women away from their lives, their moms and dads, husbands and children. And even though the main goal is to trade money for the safe return of their loved ones, there is no guarantee that the victim will be let go even after payment. In a very real way, kidnapping affects pretty much everyone that's close to the victim because the family negotiating with the criminals experiences a different kind of trauma. And both family and victim go through a psychological breakdown, which is why I've invited another true crime host to help us talk about today's case. For today's episode, we are joined by our friend, Debbie Sullivan, who hosts the True Crime University podcast. And the reason I wanted her to join us on this case is because her podcast focuses on the psychology of the criminals. So everybody, welcome, Debbie. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. Good. Glad to have have you. you. I guess I should say hola. Yeah, there you go. Oh, so tell us a little about yourself. Tell us about your podcast. Oh, okay. It's True Crime University, and it's everywhere you get podcasts. And um, I basically, it's in the format of like a classroom, and I'm the professor, and I teach people about crime and different um there goes nathan barking is it on cue um i teach about different aspects of crime especially psychology and things like that so um, yeah i thought uh having you on this one would be interesting because as you know you know the story as much as i do it gets very interesting psychologically speaking it is a it's there's a lot of twists and uh messed up things that happen that are are insane to me first of all that they that these things go on but yeah. um it, it's just it's just something that i will get into it but it's 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 just insane there's no other way to say it right um 
So I know, uh, just real quick, I know that at the same time, I thought it was cool how uh, we both covered um, the Norwegian uh, episodes. We did. Uh, at um, the same Andrew time. Baron Breivik. Oh, yeah. And Breivik, that's his name. else that we both did. Was it Lonnie Franklin? We did the Grim Sleeper. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you had done mm-hmm. the, uh, the YouTube uh, video. Okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah. At the same time. Yeah. So uh, yeah. there's been a couple uh, couple different cases that we just happened to cover at the same time. Mm-hmm. And every time I'm like, I want to listen to her show, but I can't be influenced. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. GMTA. So uh, I guess we'll just dive right into this episode because it's kind of a long one. Uh, if you guys are ready, let's go. Okay, so today's case takes us to Mexico City on September 22nd, 2002, immediately after actress, singer, and dancer Laura Zapata had just played Martirio on stage in the classic play La Casa de Bernarda Alba at the Teatro San Rafael. After the show, Laura and Ernestina Sodi got into Laura's rust-colored Jetta and their friends got in a different car so they could follow them. They take off away from the city trying to find something to eat. And as they're driving, they're just talking about Laura's performance in the play for about five blocks when they notice traffic is slowing down because a garbage truck is taking up part of the road. So they are forced to switch lanes to get around them. Just as they are about to pass the garbage truck, a white van pulls out in front of them. And then three more vans appear behind, behind them on both sides. They are still moving forward, but very slowly until they see the back door of the van in front of them open up and two masked men appear, one holding an AK-47 and one holding a hammer. The one with the AK points the gun at them until they come to a complete stop. At this point, their friends are about three cars back and see everything that's happening to them. At the sight of the, uh, of the main man with the gun, Laura and Ernestina duck down when suddenly the driver's uh, side window explodes as the masked man hits it with the hammer. Ernestina assumes these men are here to steal the car, so she opens her door and makes a run for it. But as she's running away, she sees her sister being thrown into the backseat of her own car, which causes Ernestina to freeze in place. Once Laura is in the backseat, both men run over to Ernestina. The gunman points the gun at her head while the other grabs her by the hair and violently forces her to her knees. Suddenly, the gunman hits several times, hits her several times with the barrel of the gun because they assume she's trying to resist them. But really, she's just overwhelmed by fear, a fear she's never really experienced before. Since they can't get her to move, they drag her back to the car. Once she's in the car next to her sister, she can hear a voice outside say, Please don't hurt them. They are ladies, please. She can hear the gunman respond, Shut up, you son of a bitch. Don't move or I will shoot you. <laughs> This was a voice from their friend, Fernando, who was in the car following them. Now the car is moving and the two girls are covered by jackets and held down so they become disoriented and can't tell which direction they are going. It was a very short car ride, but during those five minutes or so, the kidnappers see a car following them and open fire on them. But luckily, the gun jams after only one shot went out. At this first stop, they pull them out of the car and force them into the back of one of the white vans and they take off again. Once they know they are no longer being tailed, they turn their attention to the two women because they heard Ernestina's phone ring. It's her daughter. The captors take her phone. Give me that fucking thing. Someone was tailing us. Who was it? I don't know, sir. 
<laughs> Ernestina then hands over her purse because at this point she doesn't fully understand the severity of the situation and thinks this is just a robbery. She tells him she has 1,000 pesos and the captors laugh at her face because 1,000 pesos is about $90 American. Of course, they take it anyway. That's not a lot of money. No, it's not a lot of money. It's a lot of money in Mexico. That's for sure. A thousand pesos can get you a lot of stuff. Like what? Tacos. And sombreros. The important stuff. Tacos are important. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, they're very important. That's the first thing I did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Taco, taco. Wait, what does cayete mean? Shut up. I mean, shut up. Don't tell me shut up. Hey, this is a character, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you got to get into it. I mean it. Um, <laughs> he's not talking to you. Portraying Fine. a character now. <laughs> <laughs> so after a little over an hour of driving in the van with their heads down and covered, they arrive at their safe house. They pull them out of the back of the van while yelling at them to make sure they don't even attempt to uncover their heads. They climb a set of spiral staircases and are led into a dark room where they sit them down on a bed. The two girls are sat next to each other and instinctively they hold hands. And when all is settled down, they hear a single voice, but it's not a normal voice. It's disguised somehow and sounds robotic talking directly to Laura's voice. Directing to Laura, this voice says, Do you know what has happened? This, this is a kidnapping. This is nothing personal. You have been kidnapped because of your brother-in-law's money and we want $5 million. We don't have that kind of money. I want your sister's phone number. Your famous sister, the beauty queen. I guess when I said robotic voice, you went Terminator? (laughs) Isn't that the robot you chose? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Artistic. Influences there. Artistic license. There you go. That's good. I don't do the word robot. (laughs) You know that? What's a Mexican robot sound like? Like that. <laughs> yeah, like that. You just heard it. <laughs> you heard it here first. Oh. Uh, so Laura tells the men that she doesn't have her phone number, the beauty queens. But Ernestina speaks up and says that she might have it. They grab her phone to retrieve the number, but it was broken during the kidnapping. Laura at this point loses her shit and starts yelling and cussing at her captors. So they ask her nicely not to disrespect them because they haven't disrespected them yet. Yeah, as in cuss at them, I assume. That's what Excuse they mean. me? Yeah, they haven't cussed at them, so don't cuss at me, is what they're saying, basically. Fuck you. <laughs> and they offer them a glass of mezcal to calm their nerves. The kidnappers finally get a phone number for the beauty queen, and unfortunately, it's Laura's nephew who answers. And even though he's only a teenager at this point, the kidnappers still tell him exactly what's going on and to get this information to his mom, the beauty queen, and more importantly, her husband. That sucks for that kid to answer that phone call. Yeah, yeah. they're scarred for life. Yeah. That sucks. So it turns so, out... What? So, again, this kidnapping is just to get to the beauty queen? Uh, so far? Yeah, her... Yeah, it's this actually her husband. Her husband's the important one. I'm actually going to really into it, but uh, yeah, they are okay. kidnapping the uh, the sister, Laura Zapata is a sister of the beauty queen. Okay. How come they don't have their sister's phone number? Um, they one lives in America, and the other 
I don't know why they don't have a phone number. I know they had it falling out, but I thought they had it falling out after this. But anyways, so it turns out that Laura Zapata is the half-sister of the extremely successful actress and singer Thalia, whose full name is Ariadna Thalia Sodi Maranda. If you don't know who she is, Thalia is mostly known for the telenovelas or soap operas she played in from the late 80s to the early aughts. And the one I remember watching with my mom the most is called Marimar, where she plays a poor but incredibly beautiful girl, hence the kidnappers calling her the beauty queen. Anyway, Marimar lives with her grandparents in a hut on the beach and then marries a wealthy man. However, the dude's stepmother disapproves of him marrying a trash girl and goes out of her way to break them up, including falsely accusing her of stealing from her and getting her sent to jail. And then the stepmother kills her grandparents, you know, typical over the top telenovela soap opera bullshit. You know, just to give you a, a little insight into what kind of characters she plays, because they're always the same character. It's a, a beautiful but poor woman who goes through some shit every episode. Uh, you know. Yeah. You know that old classic story. Yeah. She's poor, but man, she's beautiful. Man, so. she's hot. <laughs> so that's her character in almost everything, which is why they call her the beauty queen. That'd be called the but, uh, Cinderella story. Yeah. Every time. It's almost every novella she's ever Good been job, in. Well. Thank you. So Thalia is also a successful singer who has made about 20 albums since 1990, including three self-titled albums. They're just named Thalia. They're, they're different albums, but they're all just named Thalia. Now, not I'm not... One, two, or three? No, just, just nope. Thalia. It confused me. It's 20 albums, three of them are just called Thalia. You I don't know. Guess. Got to guess which one you're listening to. <laughs> I know. Are you talking about Thalia 1990? Are you talking about Thalia 2003? Like, you got to be... got to clarify here. So the thing is, I'm not a huge fan of her music. I've never, it's never been something I was really into, except for there's one song that I've been listening to a lot. Uh, it came out in 2016 with Maluma called Desde Esa Noche. And I, for some reason, I really like that song, like a lot. Is that the song you made me listen to the other day? Correct. Mm, it's it wasn't that great. It's a bop and you shut your mouth. It was a pass. Smash oh, pass, pass. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm just not cultured enough. That's true. That's very true. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, as impressive as Thalia is, it's really her husband that the kidnappers were focused on. Thalia has been married to an American man named Tommy Motola. Motola? Yeah, Motola. Now, Tommy is a hugely successful music producer, and I think at the time he was the chairman and CEO of Sony Music Entertainment. This dude is loaded, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But also on an unrelated note, Tommy has been married three times, first to Elisa Clark, who I couldn't really find anything on. But his second wife was fucking peak Mariah Carey, like fantasy, mid 1990s Mariah Carey. Fantasy was after that, wasn't it? That was mid 1990s. It was 90s. Yeah. So he's married to this Mariah Carey. Mm. Not not the uh, Nick Cannon Mariah Carey. No, (laughs) this is this is peak. I mean, man. So the, and, that, and then Thalia, if you find a picture of Thalia, she's actually also very good looking. I mean, they call her the beauty queen. So the money really speaks for itself because the dude's just an average looking dude to me. Mm. And uh, like I said, they were married from what 93 average. to 98. And when they got divorced, I'm not sure exactly how much she got, but I know she got to keep the 35 carat engagement ring. 35 um, carats? Yes, 35 carat wow. engagement ring. Uh, there was also that, like a five to ten million big? settlement. 
fuck? Is 35 carat baked? Um, What's yours? Yeah. Uh, total, this is like, uh, fuck, I don't know, like probably three total with my band. Oh, okay. So 35 is, is like a, it's like a, it's like a, big as my it's hand. Like, it's like a ring queen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like a ring pop, but a diamond on it. Yes. Okay. Holy shit. That's a lot. And it was probably worth like millions of dollars. Yeah. I think on top of the ring, she got like a five to $10 million settlement. I don't know what else she got, but she got a lot of money out of marrying Tommy Motola. So Wait, you she can see him before Mariah Carey or after? She married him after because they were so Mariah Carey's 93 to 98, and uh, I think um, Dalia's 2000, and they're still married. Oh, they are? Yeah. I didn't find anything about them separating. I knew that. I knew that. I was just kidding. Yeah, you definitely. You looked definitely up so fast. You look up. Yeah. Yes, I did. I'm prepared. <laughs> Shut up. Anyways, it was Tommy's money they were after, and they figured if they kidnapped Laura, who was Dalia's half sister, Tommy would give a shit. Plus, Laura is famous in her own right. Like, not Thalia status, but still doing good, which, you know, she was in, you know, some TV shows and she was a singer and she had, like, she mainly played in the novella. She played the bad guy a lot. Like, she was always the villain. So, she, you know, she had her, she wasn't, like, famous, famous, but she she was up there still. People knew who she was. And so, you know, her being kind of famous put a little bit more pressure on the family to act, you know, because it's, as soon as the media finds out, it's going to, it's going to blow up. So once the kidnappers made contact with Lada's family, they came back in the room. All right. Now we're going to go, we're going to let your friend here go. We're going to get her ready and she can leave. No, please don't let her go. She isn't my friend. She's my sister. Now, I'm just going to let that sit for a bit because I'm sure at this moment you are reacting the same way that Ernestina reacted in that moment, which was basically, are you fucking kidding me? Why the actual fuck <laughs> would you tell him that shit? <laughs> I don't know. Why? They're, they're just saying, we're going to let your friend go. He's like, no, don't let her go. She's actually my <laughs> sister. Like, are you fu- Are you serious right now? Yeah, you Is just this real like, life? Bitch, I don't Nailing, know you. Nailing I don't know you. Right there for you. <laughs> I don't know you. <laughs> So after this, after this information, after she yelled this information to their captors, yeah. uh, they say, Is that true? Are you Laura and the beauty queen's sister? Yes, sir. What is your last name? My name is Ernestina Sodi Miranda. Oh, you have the same last name as the beauty queen. Yes, sir. That's right. Well, well, it looks like we've hit the jackpot. Ernestina. You are saying with us. <laughs> I love so, voice. <laughs> that is how Ernestina Sodi came to be held against her will with her sister, Laura Zapata. And now that we know that little bit of information, I can talk about our source for this episode. Uh, for this case, we used a book called Deliver Us From Evil, written by Ernestina Sodi herself. In Me? the book, she, yes, you. In the book, she makes it very clear that everyone experiences the trauma of being kidnapped differently. And if you ask Laura about what happened, she might tell you a different version of the story. And that doesn't make it not true. It's just a whole different experience. At the beginning of the book, Ernestina tells us that the day of the kidnapping, she had been invited by friends to go see her sister's play, but had said no 
at first because she had a pinched nerve and didn't feel well enough to go, but was convinced to go anyway by her friends. Then she tells us that Laura had convinced her to get into the rust-colored Jetta instead of their friend's car that she came in. She points out in the book that the smallest choices sometimes lead to the biggest events in your life. And, uh, well, Debbie, that- I know you also read the book too, right? Yeah. What do you think of the book? Um, of her experience? I was shocked at it. It seemed to me just the way the people reacted that, and I totally didn't know this. I've never been to Mexico, that kidnappings happen a lot there. Like this was kind of a common thing. And I was telling my mom about this because her and her, um, my stepdad go to Riviera Maya a lot without me, of course. (laughs) And I said, did you ever talk about this with anybody in Mexico? She said, oh yeah, we know. She knew that people were targeted, you know, like the rich people. The rich. Yeah. And um, I was, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, when it ended, but it, uh, this happens to a lot of women, people, even men. As, as you heard in the book, there was few men that they were talking about. Um, but it's not really like an everyday person thing. There's no point in kidnapping your average you know, person because what, what's the good? You, they don't have millions or even hundreds of thousands of pesos to hand over. So it does happen to the elite a lot. Like It's a very, very normal occurrence yeah. as, as much as that sucks to say. And what what I found personally even more disturbing is the fact that so many times they didn't want to involve the police because they didn't trust the police or they thought they might be in on it. And that's just so scary to live in a country where something happens and you can't call the police because you can't trust them. That's Oh yeah. We, we have covered four or five episodes now based out of Mexico um, I like to do stories out of Mexico, and almost every time this comes up, whether it's a drug cartel or, you know, just uh, and even um, like the last episode we did is about Chalino Sanchez and the Mexican police stonewalled the American police that were investigating it. They would not cooperate. And it, it, you just never know who you can trust and who's at the top of, you know, the who has who in their in their pocket, you know? Yeah. That's who's, just who's bought out the most. I mean, it's like criminals do stuff and you kind of expect it because they're criminals but the police it's like you don't or well here anyway you don't expect that from them and you right. expect them to be honest and protect you and stuff and then there's somewhere where they're not and it's like oh man that that really that's really shitty yeah. yep yeah, but if you ask Octavia about the police here, he'd probably give you the same story. <laughs> I, I did. I did hold back. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I don't feel that way about police here. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's anyways. That's like your opinion, thanks, Will. Man. Yeah, that's, that's that's like your opinion, man. Yeah, thank you for uh, lining that up for me. Will. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I was just gonna speak briefly on. Uh, when she points out the smallest choices sometimes lead to the biggest events. That's like the butterfly effect. It's yeah. like if, if in, you know, if I spend an extra two minutes in the shower, I wouldn't have gotten in the car accident or whatever. Yeah. So it, it, it's easier to look back on it and be like, Oh shit. If I had done something a little bit different, I wouldn't have ended up in this situation, but it, it is what, what is it, it hindsight, is. Hindsight's always 20, 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can look back on events and be like, well, 
if that red light was five seconds longer, you know, wouldn't have got T-boned. You'd, you'd have been in a different spot. Yeah. So yeah. If we lived our lives doing that, though, we'd literally always find some reason for something to not go right or go wrong or, you know, to always have it going wrong or going right. Yeah, so. you'd live in bubble wrap. <laughs> yeah. Or you'd live in like making yourself insane because you'd always think you need to live like five seconds slower, five seconds faster or whatever. Or maybe that's just me who thinks that way. Yeah. <laughs> could be. yeah. <laughs> no one else is paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> if it happens, it happens. Nope. That's how I live my life. Huh? Well, I mean, it does. True. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. So those first couple days, the two women thought mainly of the lives they left behind, especially their children. Ernestina had a few daughters and cried for them constantly. At the same time, their captors were busy making sure the women understood the severity of their situation by brandishing weapons and sitting sitting outside the door of the room they were being held in and making all kinds of noise, as in like cleaning their weapons, cocking them constantly, loading and unloading weapons, you know, just making sure they know they have guns on them. And the sisters were given simple but incredibly important rules. Number one, is there to be covered immediately when they hear a knock at the door? Number two, do not look at captors for any reason, ever. If you do see them, you will die. Number three, the TV is not to be touched and remain on at all times. And number four, don't go near the windows. If you do, we will kill you. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Can I say one little thing about the TV sure. being on all the time? I'm just somebody who's sensitive to noise. That would drive me absolutely insane. I think they did that on purpose. Oh, to, yeah. They used it absolutely yep, as a weapon. As torture. Is, yeah. Yep. yeah I wonder what was on the TV, though. Her novellas? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> her sister. Oh, it's bad <laughs> enough. It's constantly on. It's just her sister's novellas constantly. <laughs> constantly on the whole time. Just Thalia on the TV <laughs> all the time. That would be worse. That'd be so much worse. Oh man. You guys have obviously thought about this. No, just but Debbie, you were right. Like the I mean, I know Emily, she gets sensory overload easily. Yes, very quickly. So so I mean, this isn't just like the TV's on and background noise. And and it actually dawns on Ernestina that the most important rule is the one with the TV. The constant, incessant noise is a weapon the kidnappers are using because the TV isn't just like on in the background. It's on full volume at all hours of the day. And I would, be, uh, I would be I would be insane. Yeah. And aside from the TV, the captors outside have like a table where they sit. They have a radio playing just as loud at all times. And it's the radio, the constant messing around with the guns, loading, unloading. You can hear bullets dropping. It's enough to drive anybody crazy. I'd so, be fine with it. It doesn't I think I would, be too. I would have, I, I I would have made them out. go crazy, actually, though. I'm quite certain. Yeah, I can Leave drown noise out like no one's business. Like, I, I can ignore the hell out of everything. And, uh, I've been needing actually, to fall asleep with the TV on. But I think it's because I'm stressed. Like, it's... Yeah, maybe. They actually, um, they point out that they had, I don't go into it, so it's fine to talk about now. They point out they had a male captor who was this rich guy or something, and he was like a buff dude. He was just like a, 
he looked like Henry Cavill in that one movie where he like loads his arm. You know what I'm talking? I think it's Mission Impossible. Anyways, so he looks like Henry Cavill in a suit, basically, and he's being held captive by these people in a whole different safe house. And the guy who's captive is in the room, like punching the walls nonstop. He says, "If I can't sleep, you can't sleep." And oh, so the him. guy's like fighting back. The cap, the guy who's got caught, is fighting back, literally punching the walls making sure that the people outside can't sleep either and he actually they get pissed off with him and they're like fine you want to fight let's fight and they all go in there and they go one by one and the captor beats everyone's ass every like and they actually all end up jumping in together and the dude still wins and and so they the guy in charge gets pissed off and they ordered him to hold him down and then they string him up and hold him upside down but that guy ends up getting free so good for him but yeah see, it's not just women it's, it's dudes too and, and some of them fight back wouldn't henry cavill in a suit just be superman yeah i was about to say that no it would be clark kent clark no kent. look it up it's uh i think it's mission impossible where he's like henry cavill played he's, superman so superman. no i, I know he wears i'm a just suit. saying no, that's Clark Kent. A regular Kent. suit is. That's the same. Kent. Come on, nerds. No, okay, so no, I'm. Bro, uh, you know what I'm saying? Let's go. Let's go. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. No, but if you look up, I think it's. I'm pretty sure it's Mission Impossible. Like the thing about them, I mentioned that is because yes, he's wearing a suit, but you can through the suit it's so like tight you can see his muscles through the suit. So it's like. So it's like Superman. Oh my god! Yeah. Sure. It's so Superman. Talking, got that movie, movie on repeat. He's like, do you see the muscles through his suit? Yes. He you wouldn't? Does. Henry Cavill is gorgeous. Yes, he is. He's a nerd. So anyways. He's a what? He's a nerd. He He's a giant nerd. He built his own computer and he plays like all kinds of video games. In real life? Correct. Yeah. <gasps> Excuse me? Yeah. Look, it's it's a thing anyways okay. you can look it up on your own time and... i'm good i don't need to i'm done <laughs> Move okay. it. Uh, no more henry, henry cavill for you Mm-mm. so later on in the day the captors come in and are being nice and offering to help with any wounds they sustained in the kidnapping and offering to get them things that they may need but laura ever the attitude flat refuses out of pure spite <laughs> while ernestina asks for her cigarettes like if you're going to offer me stuff like give me my cigarettes I, I need my cigarettes. And they actually go out and they get them right away. They give her a few cigarettes. When it's time to try and go to sleep, they realize that there is a camera pointed directly at the bed and they are expected to share this bed with the camera pointed straight at them. So they ask if they can sleep on the floor instead because can you fucking imagine trying to sleep knowing people are watching? Like there's a camera pointed at the bed. No, I couldn't sleep. No. Wouldn't bother me. Really? The camera would bother me. I don't like being watched at all times. Sorry. Will smiling. Will just smiling. I got a camera on your bed, dude. <laughs> Take us up. Damn it. Over the course of their captivity, they had a handful of handlers and each had their own specific purpose. They all introduced themselves with obviously fake names. And, and uh, impressively enough, Ernestina was able to easily distinguish who was who by their voices and the way that they smelled and even the sound of their footsteps. She could hear Wait, them shuffling blindfolded? the entire time. They never see anybody. Uh, they can take off their blindfold when no one's in there. Uh, but most of the time, they like have what? the blanket or like a towel. When they hear knocks, they throw it over their head like immediately. They hear a knock, None. they immediately cover two. their head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, no, 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 no. So, get the real dead 
quick, so quick. Oh, so I, fast. I forgot. See, they would have already shot you. Just, also, I don't yeah. follow rules. I don't like rules. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Fuck you. Then you're dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah. So they're, they're allowed to have them off when no one's in the room except for them. But when someone knocks or anyone's in the room, they have to keep their eyes covered or something over their head at all times. So, like I said, she's uh, she can hear someone shuffling towards the door and know who's about to enter the door. You know what I mean? And she can smell them and know that, you know, this is um, Rudy or, you know, this is someone else. So she because your senses is true, like your senses go in overdrive when one of them's taken away. Why are you laughing? Because I'm just like the Rudy thing and then Rudy one. Yeah, that's <laughs> I know. I thought about that too every time I typed it, but that's the names. That's the actual names. So yeah. she says she never saw a single one of them, but could tell you a lot about them simply by their presence. They had two guys come in and check on them every day and bring them their food and clean up the room. And both of these guys said their name was Rudy. Rudy one was older and loved to smoke weed and was always trying to convince his sister to smoke the devil's lettuce. And Rudy two was younger and smelled better. Then there was the guy who seemed like he was in charge and they simply called him the midget. And he is the one with the weirdly robotic voice. There were some other people she could hear outside the door that didn't interact with her. And she thinks it was their job to negotiate with the family. So everyone has a specific role that they, they do and in support of it's like a group, it's a crew. So three days after their capture, they are woken up by the men outside yelling at each other. Now we're really fucked. What are those goddamn policemen doing out front? I don't know. Someone says something about a drug raid, but if they come in here, I'll get in the doorway. And you go inside and open fire on them. And here and from then on, it's every man for himself. Should I kill them? That's what I fucking said. Yes, fire at them. <laughs> And then the fucking game starts. And then we will see what those cops are made of. <laughs> the He's two like sisters can hear. Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> <He is. laughs> uh, I was morphing in a Scarface a little bit there, too. You, were, you do that every time, man. I know. Every, every time. time. I get all, I get all amped favorite. up. You get, get all, all Miami. Up. You you go from like like Chicano Mexican to like Miami to like Italian. Yeah. Like you just gradually get there. They all kind of sound well, the same. Well, sometimes when he's not trying to sound Mexican, he always ends Mexican. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> so the two sisters can hear every word of this conversation and begin praying that the police do not enter the building they are in. I don't want to die. Not like this. This goes on for about two hours when suddenly the second Rudy bursts in the room and tells them to get their shit together because they are being moved to a room on the third floor. But even this is just another stopping point because they are about to be moved to a completely different safe house. The women are then given some clothes and told to bathe. And the second Rudy takes Ernestina by the hand and guides them to the bathroom. You know, when that guy held my hand, it felt warm, nice. Oh, Titi, none of these delinquents have a shred of warmth in them. They are criminals, all of them. And just to clarify, Titi is uh, the nickname for Ernestina. So after Not, three more days... Wasn't what? Titi? Titi. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Titi. Not Titi. Okay. Did I say Titi or Titi? No, no, you said Titi. No, no, you said it right. Will yeah, would have right. read Titi. I would have said Titi. Will would... <laughs> ah, Titi. Titi. <laughs> Tomato, tomato, tomato. Come on. 
I would have said it too, but not like <laughs> on purpose. I just sort of read it like Will saying it. <laughs> okay, sorry. After three more days in the room, the new room, they're finally told they're being moved. As they pack their few things into a trash bag, the men come back in and force the sisters to remove any jewelry they may have, except for Laura manages to take off her diamond ring and hide it in her bra, and then later would transfer it to a shampoo bottle. The second house is only a few minutes away, and the room they are led to is on the second floor and has a bathroom in the room this time. Shortly after arriving, Laura notices that Ernestina's face is drooping and paralyzed on the right side. But she refuses to acknowledge it and literally just ignores it. Emily, I know you have thoughts about this. Excuse me? She's having a fucking stroke and she's just going to ignore it? She thinks it's related to the uh, numbness that she feels in her in her legs. The oh, yeah. Hair. That's what Probably she a DVT, the you. fucking reason she's having a stroke. Uh, That's what she says. Bell's palsy. No. <laughs> but literally, she's just like, um, she says that she's not going to let them win. She's She doesn't feel bad. She doesn't feel bad. She's like, no, I'm not feeling this. I am not weak. And so she just leaves it alone. No. They, nev- they never Jesus mention it again. Christ. They never mention it again, dude, in the well, entire book. All right, then. Yeah, Maybe she, she doesn't fun. just have Bell's palsy. I don't know. Or a TIA. <sighs> it started with the DVT. No, she's got, she's full on CVA at this point. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> She'll be fine. Put <laughs> <laughs> some dirt on it. But even if she didn't just decide to completely ignore it, uh, the safe house had a visitor that day. And he only came around the one time, just once, to make sure that everything is still running smoothly. And even though they never see this man, they can feel his presence and can feel how even the men who are watching over the sisters fear this man. Ernestina says she can feel that his that this man emanates pure evil. And now he was in the building barking orders at his men. And he's barking orders like, I need you to beat them. I need you to rough them up. Like he's he's barking, like telling them, yelling at the crew to mess them up and like treat them poorly and so they can hear all this too like this guy is not quiet they sound very nice yeah oh yeah they are so after the evil man leaves rudy too comes back in the room to feed them and check on them and starts making conversation with ernestina he asked her if she would write his story because after all she is a writer and the story he wants her to write about is how he had once fallen in love with a girl they kidnapped that he nicknamed the princess and the thought of reuniting with her one day is what keeps him going. He goes on to tell her that one day he blindfolded her and then kissed her. No, that can't be true. That's too crazy to be true. He says it is true. And that if he could, he would get out of this business. Yeah, that was a car going by. Uh, get out of this business. He just wants to be free to do what he wants. Then he walks out and the women are just left thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> They're just pouring out all of his emotions. <laughs> It, dude, it gets so much worse. At this point, though, he's just said that he needs her to write his story or whatever because he's fallen in love with the woman he's kidnapped. Is she, at this point, understanding who he's talking about? No, she has no idea. Who's, she just knows that <laughs> these other girls called the princess. He nicknamed her the princess. I fell in love with the princess. And I'm going to kiss her. And I'm going to get out of this business. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it all behind me. You know? That <laughs> for... I know, dog. One day. Hey, one day, bro, we can get out of this business together. <laughs> oh, my God. Live a normal life for once. 
<laughs> well, that's really good. Gracias. <laughs> a day later, they decide they need to shower so that they can get some energy back and clean themselves and keep some kind of decency. You know, they don't want to get like let themselves go too much. They want to keep some kind of normalcy in their life just to, I guess, keep up morale. And after they showered, they got dressed and then heard a knock on the door, which automatically triggered the act of carving their heads with their blanket. They've been pavlobbed at this point, like it's instant reaction. As they sit on the bed with their heads covered, one of the main bosses walks in. This boss is also known as a northerner. And just judging by his aura, they get the sense that this man is a, as, as dangerous as it gets, and they cower further back on the bed. Well, well, what do we have here? So they tell me the two of you behave yourselves that you don't cause any trouble. <laughs> also, I don't know if I gave you guys trigger warnings ahead of this, but this is where I it starts. I read, I read ahead. It's yeah, it gets. Uh, this is a trigger warning from here on out. If I didn't do it to begin with, obviously, kidnapping and tough situations. But th- from this point on, this is this is where it gets really fucked. Yeah, Just and I got to act it out. Yeah, I know. I did that on purpose. I was <laughs> Thank God you didn't give it to me. typing. I was like, we'll we'll read this out loud. <laughs> Son of a bitch. All right. I love how you just like clawed the keyword. Let's <laughs> <laughs> me angry typing. <laughs> At this point, the northerner tells them about his abusive father. And then like everyone's just sharing personal shit with these women. Yeah, this is really so fucking weird. weird. Yeah, it's dude, it's weird. That's why I wanted Debbie here because it's weird. Like, so he, he's just letting this all out, right? It's abusive father. And then after he talks about his dad, he orders the rest of the men out of the room and he tells them to close the door. This obviously creates fear in the sisters and they cower even further. You know what, Lorita? I've seen you on TV. You're a really tough broad, aren't you? No, sir. Those are just the characters I play. Nah, don't play innocent with me. I know you can be damn stubborn when you want to, but you're also really cute. (laughs) The two sisters hold hands as they begin to feel the bed shake, and it quickly dawns on them that this man is masturbating on the bed next to them. Uh Oh, Mm -mm. Oh, Larita, you're so hot. You don't know how much I like it when old ladies like you get a wild. Oh, Laura. Laura, you're so hot. Yes, like that. Like that. Mmm, that's nice. That's it. Yes, yes. God. Really, Antonio? Really? Finally, they hear the man get up, and then they feel him clean himself off with the blanket they are hiding under. Uh, well, I hope you keep behaving like you have so far. I don't know if I'm going back, but I want to make it clear that if you act up, you'll never see your children again. And with that, he leaves the room and the two sisters throw the blanket off of them. And all that's left is the stink he left behind. I just want to thank you for (laughs) putting that in there and making me read it because that (laughs) felt gross. You may have a a future in Mexican porn. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just dub. You just be yeah. dubbing. Just dub it. Yeah, I'll do the the dubbing from Spanish to English. Yeah, I put a lot of these parts in because 
there is no death in this episode, but it is doesn't mean it's not as harrowing. This is a very real, very frightening experience for a lot of people. Uh, and Emily and Debbie as women, you realize that is incredibly stressful and terrifying, right? Like what yeah. just happened? Yeah. Yeah. And I also realized why you asked me if you could write some shit and if I would say it. And I said, absolutely fucking not. And I'm so glad I did that. Yeah. I'll say anything. There ain't no way. I will not. I should have gave it to Debbie. I should have gave it to Debbie. She said she'd say whatever. I was a firefighter. I mean. Oh, really? My mouth. Yeah. Well, my mouth is pretty bad, but I will not say the derogatory terms he wanted me to say. Oh, I probably would. (laughs) (laughs) I like you, Debbie. Over the next couple of days, the sisters lean hard on their faith because they realize that the incident with the Northerner could have easily turned into a rape situation and are grateful it did not, but also want to pray so that it doesn't happen at all. One morning, Rudy comes in and is much nicer than usual and is bringing them whatever stuff they ask for. When he returns, he tells the sisters that later that night, they will be coming back and they will be bringing tequila to drink and they will be having themselves a little party. Instead of being excited like their captors were expecting, all this did was cause dread because why were they doing this? What And what did they mean exactly by party? Like drugs? I don't Lots know. Like you, If you're being held captive and you're they're saying like, oh, we're going to have a party tonight. Like what, what goes through your mind? Rape and drugs. So they, and a lot of times when they, the captors... I don't I don't want to say it like this, but a lot of times they don't mean harm or they don't mean they're not mean spirited. I mean, aside from them being held against aside from them being held against their will. (laughs) Fuck you. While they're there, they're not mean to them. Yeah. So so when they're saying we're gonna have a party, they mean, oh, we're just gonna party. But the girls immediately like, um, what is party code for rape? Like what's happening here? Yeah, yes, that's, that's what you would think, or a girl would think. Yeah. Also, um, is Homegirl, am I just still sitting here having a stroke at this point? Yeah, yeah. she does nothing about it. Literally, <laughs> I'm telling you, it never mentions it again in the book, ever. That's awesome. I love she that just, for me. And her sister's like looking, because there's no mirrors in there, so her sister's like, hey, your <laughs> face is droopy. And she's like, no, it's not. It's fine. Okay. I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. We're, We're all fine. It's fine. She's just, she's that meme of the dog sitting in fire. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) This is fine. Later, just before sundown, they decide to put their hair up and put on the biggest, loosest fitting clothes they could find. And when they hear the knock on the door, they put on their blindfolds extra tight. A few seconds later, the group of men walk in and announce they brought snacks like chips and peanuts along with alcohol. They put on some music and pour the girls some drinks. The captors can tell they aren't comfortable. And Rudy says, relax, the midget isn't here, uh, which actually does relax them. And they end up just drinking their drinks. It doesn't last long, but on their way out, the men left the bottle of tequila. And so the sisters took off their blindfolds and continued the party getting drunk together. Just the two of them. So it was a party. It was a party. But again, you're held captive against your will. That's not what you think. But yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. They're not mean spirited. I, I can't even oh say that. I, I don't know how to get across what I'm yeah, trying to say. Kinda, not. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's it's right. uh, 
Like they're just doing a they, job, is what you're trying to say. They're not trying to yes, be like exactly, extra, yeah. You say that top, overly yeah. hateful, whatever. Mean, just, for no reason, job right? They're just trying to do it. And they say that many times, like this is just a job. This is what we do, and they're not even like necessarily connected to the cartel. Like this is what they do for a living. Is just what it is. Then they won't mind someone who doesn't fucking listen. Yeah, they will. Makes well, yeah, the job harder. They, I mean, yeah, they'll just kill them. That's right. wrong. I'd rather it's just. Not, they're not mean to be mean, but if they have to, they will. I mean, these people kidnapped you. Think they won't? No, I'm hoping they would. I would just do whatever I could to go. Oh, okay. All right, you would last very long. <laughs> Fifteen minutes tops. <laughs> Why are you giving yourself a lot of credit? Yeah, I am actually. I'll give you two. <laughs> <laughs> two, William. Uh-huh. That's yeah, it. You, That's all you're you going to give me is two minutes. Yeah, you got a mouth on you. <laughs> <laughs> After the party. After the party day, Laura decides that she was going to stop speaking directly to the kidnappers. And after a few days of this happening, Laura stops talking completely, leaving Ernestina with no one to talk to. Laura has become fully numb to the world. Laura, please don't stop speaking to me. I know you're in pain, that you're angry and hurt, but please don't stop speaking to me. I'll go crazy if you do. Can you do that again with a little more emotion, please? Like you're really there. Just run from the top. I know you're in pain and that you're angry and hurt, but please don't stop speaking to me because I'll go crazy if you do. Thank you. Laura pauses for a moment, then suggests that they do some exercise because she realizes that they need to lean on each other and not shut each other out. I just like the uh, white pronunciation of Laura. 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 <laughs> Laura. Laura. I'm gonna roll that R. I cannot roll my R's for anything. You can see that. Oh, I hope Laura. I don't have to say that, do I? No, I think you're fine. Who just oinked? Emily. I hate you, Will. <laughs> <laughs> What a dick. Laura. Okay. All right. Moving Hold on. on. I'm having a stroke. You, you, remember? You can't do that. I'm having a stroke. No, in the story. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. See? I'm in character. Oh, okay. So Matt, if she has that actually, she can't roll her R's anymore. Okay. Oh, that's why. I get exactly. it. I get it. Okay. Exactly. All right. Duh. <laughs> A few mornings later, Rudy 1 comes in, and at this point, they have been in captivity anywhere from 10 to 18 days, depending on the source. Um, I'm going to say 10 days sounds more accurate. I don't know. Anywhere from 10 to 18. Like, there's literally, there's no it's pretty loose. solid. Yeah, there's no solid, like, this is how long it's been. Two to three weeks. So, right. So, two to three weeks. Uh, and on this day, Rudy 1 isn't as cheerful as usual. He comes in and just sets the food down and says... You aren't behaving. We don't want any noise, you hear? Yes, sir. A few hours later, he comes back in and completely removes the TV. And following that, the midget walks in. The time has come. Oh, wait, wait. The midget has the robotic voice. The time has come. (laughs) Now one of you two has to leave. The guys are getting ugly. And one of you has to go. So you can take over the negotiations. And this is your moment of truth. Let's see who's here. 
who is going to give up their life for the other one? The question is met with an intense silence that lasts a whole minute, and Ernestina can feel her sister sobbing under the blanket. I'll stay. Are you sure? This is the first time in this business I have ever seen that. In this very bed, we have seen fathers fight sons, mothers fight with daughters, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, all turning against each other. After this decision had been made, Rudy too takes Ernestina by the hand and leads her out of the room so he can talk to her alone and make sure that she fully understands the choice she has made. While Rudy too is talking to Ernestina, the rest of the men are grilling Laura about what she's going to do to get the money when they let her go. When they are satisfied with her answers, they are allowed to be back together. Hold on. Can so I? they've had all these people fighting and they've kidnapped that many people, sets of people in that mm-hmm. bed. Yep. This is a oh. business. Yeah. Yeah. This wow. is their like main base. Can I um, add something? Sure. Of course. Um, the thing about when they say you have to pick somebody, that's a, um, a form of, of torture that people use. I, I did, uh, I don't know if you heard it, I did Gerard Schaefer. He's a Florida serial killer a few months ago. He was horrible. Absolute, total dickhead. Very big sadist. What he would do, he would kidnap two girls, teenage girls at a time always two at a time for this reason. He would take them into the Everglades, hang them up in trees, and he would make them pick who would die and who would be sold into slavery, which he didn't do. He always killed them both, no matter what. But he loved to make them go through the thing of picking and arguing and deciding which one of us is going to die. He really literally got off on that. So that's what makes me think that they're due in here. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's a, a psychological torture of yeah. having to decide, you know, your all, your whole family is kidnapped. Like, okay, who we have to pick one person to die. The weakling. Like the, oh man. And I'm about to talk about it a little bit, but the context is very similar to what you're saying, Debbie. It's um, So the reaction of them being quiet and then Ernestina willingly volunteering to give her life for her sisters, like he said, has literally never happened. So as I'm about to talk about, he did not, like, that answer did not make him happy. He was actually pissed off that it was, that she would do that. And is not something he was expecting at all. Like he he said it himself. He's seen family fight each other to be the one to be able to leave this nightmare. But when Ernestina was like, I'll just stay. Fuck it. He was like, what? No, does not like, does not compute, you know? And I'm about to talk about it right now, how he reacted to this, uh, this answer. So the night that Laura left, Rudy too comes in to take her to a different room, but also to try and comfort her a little bit. He is carrying Ernestina down to meet the midget where he begins grilling her again about whether Laura was the right choice to let go. And like, he's like angry about this. He's grilling her like, why, why did we let her go? Why, what makes this the right fucking, like he's super angry and he's asking her these questions and he's just getting more and more mad until finally, for the first time since she has been captured, she felt one of them, she doesn't know who, strike her across the face. 
The hit dazes her and she sways, but she doesn't get a chance to react because heavy blankets are placed over her. And it seems like everybody at that point took turns beating her. It stops as quick as it started and she feels a strong hand grab her and throw her up against the wall while placing a gun to her head. And she's thinking, this is it. I'm about to die. But the click she hears is not from the gun, but from a camera. And at that moment, she instantly understands that they only beat her to send the pics to her family so they have more incentive to pay the money. The kidnappers needed to show that they meant business. Yikes. That reminds me of, um, you said like the click of the camera, Lonnie Franklin. He took their pictures. That's all they can hear. Or she can hear. There's only one. Yeah, that's a tough situation. And he took that anger out of not understanding her selflessness by literally beating the hell out of her. He just, it just did not, he didn't understand it. He, uh, he wasn't capable of understanding the decision of being that selfless to give your life willingly for someone you love. And she actually, in the book, I, I really should have typed it in here, but in the book she says that she knows now that there's no one on earth that she loves more than her sister because she gave her she literally gave her life for her sister and that's not there's no denying that yeah that's yeah really also like she was saying like that's like a form of torture i mean it's a continuous thing to have that feeling i guess well yeah if you can imagine that you know your sister brother whoever uh saying like oh no I'll, i'll i'll be the one to stay in and essentially die and let the other one go free. And if they actually were murdered, having that on your yeah your brain for the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, like, those couple of days where she stopped talking, Laura, that's really the incentive that um, Ernestina needed because she knew if it was her that would leave, her sister wouldn't make it. She would not survive this. She would, she would be gone. And there would no matter if she got the money or not, her sister would not make it. And she knew that she knew that in her heart, that the right choice for everyone to survive was for Laura to get out of here. So for the next few days, the Rudy's are extra nice on that first morning after the beating, Rudy too comes in with breakfast and, and begs for forgiveness because the crew purposely sent him away while they assaulted her. And if he was there, he would not have let it happen. The second morning, both Rudy's came in and told her they have a surprise for her. They told her to get washed up, but not to dry her hair because today they will be taking her out to the balcony to get some sun. Because at this point, it had been 24 days since they captured her. To her surprise, they actually take her out to sit on the sunny balcony and not just a ploy to murder her. She decides to let the warmth of the sun wash over her and enjoys this moment as much as she can. While she's basking, she's brought back to reality when she hears the voice of the midget in her ear. And it seems like the purpose of this little outing is to try and extract more information out of Ernestina. And aside from talking about her daughters, which she had a rule that if they ever said anything about her daughter, she would clam up and never talk. Um, As long as they didn't ask about her daughter, she would answer any questions they had. She had no reason not to. And they would ask her questions about what kind of property she owns, what what kind of money her, her family could possibly get. Like, what do you think her sister's doing at the moment to try to get the money? And uh, when she left, uh, Lauda actually told him, because she's, like I said, she's in TV. She's in media. So she knows top people. 
and she said that she would get um editors and and um tv uh hosts to put out like a uh, what are they called? like a charity no like a collection publicly a collection uh, to to try to like get money from the public so they can pay the I don't know if they wanted five million dollars or I don't know exactly how much they wanted I don't remember and is this dollars or pesos I think it's dollars I think they deal in dollars the uh, kidnappers seems a little steep they like I said Tommy Motola is who their target is so yeah and he's got a lot of money steep. oh if it's steep for sure five carat ring he can probably afford. Yeah, yeah, but it's a matter of like, are they gonna pay it or are they like, whatever? You're gonna hold out and try to see. Imagine that being that though, like being that guy. Yeah, you know you're the target, and yeah, like what is the, you? Don't, we don't negotiate with terrorist type mentality. Yeah, yeah, shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but take I mean, whatever you need. I'm not giving you shit. If it's me, I mean, that's a it's a if it's a family member, and it's some somebody who you know the police are are shitty like that i mean i give whatever i had to save you know like my sister-in-law or brother-in-law or... Yeah. yeah i wouldn't hope we all would yeah from if uh the internet is to be believed though uh most people who are super successful uh businessmen are sociopaths <laughs> so right right so i'm not saying he yeah. is i'm just saying if well, the internet's to be true. believed yeah. Yeah. Like you have to have a certain amount of callousness to get to the top. Exactly. Like cutthroat mentality. So I, I don't know if he's like, I'm not going to give these terrorists my hard earned money, you know, these kidnappers. It could be that. I, they really don't go into detail about the that aspect of it in the book. It's mainly just about her journey through these, uh, this month of torture. And uh, later, things start to get weird. When Rudy One comes in one day and starts making small talk, then lets it slip that the rest of the guys want to try and hook her up with a guy they have kidnapped in the other safe house. He says the other guy is older and not that good looking, but the crew thinks it would be funny if they hooked up. So what do you think? I think you're all sick. Rudy One laughed it off and then went into a bunch of stories about other people they have kidnapped. And this is when she tells him about that Henry Cavill guy. Uh, and then once again, Rudy One offered Ernestina some ganja. And once again, she refuses. Then she said, Rudy, if you'll stop offering me drugs, I will give you a present. Come on, Sodi. What can you give me? I'm going to give you a diamond ring. Come on. What do you mean a diamond ring? I'm not going to tell you anything else. Go into the bathroom and take the bottle of shampoo inside and you'll find a beautiful ring. I promise not to tell anyone about this, okay? Thanks, Sodi. Thanks for everything. That's a weird interaction, I think. Yeah. I know I put that in there for a reason. That was just like weird. It's just, it's starting to get weird. I mean, I'm not starting. It's weird. It's, <laughs> it's, the whole weird. Thing is fucked. it's, it's been, been weird. It's been weird. <laughs> yeah. The whole thing, like the way they're acting is, it's like they're detached, right? Like they're not holding this woman against her will. It's just a normal but conversation. But it's a job for them. They I know, don't. That's what's this crazy about it. Well, I mean, if you do something so long for so often, yeah. I mean, and so often. Exactly just becomes like second nature like it's no longer looked at as kidnapping you're going to work at eight to five you know whatever the hell their shifts are Mm -hmm. it's not kidnapping it's just holding a human captive 
I think this is like, I mean, I'm I'm not real familiar with Mexico and the gangs and how they operate, but I'm thinking that this is lo- a lot like the Italian mob, how it's like your family, it's just your job, you're born into it, and you have roles, you know, and you do this, this person does this, mm-hmm. this person does that, and they don't really think about it, like, if, is this right or wrong, it's just my heritage, or just my my role, you know, in yeah. this society. So it could I very mean, well be that. That's what I'm thinking. Well, Rudy too tells her uh, later on that he came from a um, a high-ranking cartel woman who, because she's a woman, she had no problem killing um, to make her point across. Right? And she's a woman in the business; she has to be rough. And she, he tells a story about one day uh, some guy crossed her and she said take him to the pigs and he didn't know what she meant till the next day he went to the pig pen and found them feasting on a body and that's when he's like fuck this shit i'm out uh and then so he went away and he met up with a cousin he's like hey if you want to make real money come into the kidnapping business and he's been doing that ever since and that's just that's just like his cousin got him a job in the kidnapping business (laughs) yeah sounds lucrative it is. He has. He actually Obviously. has. He says he has a car washing business, and he has like a couple side projects and like a couple houses he's working on. So he makes some money. Well, he has to have a, a front for the laundering. You know, they don't launder shit in Mexico. No, nah, they don't give a shit. <clears throat> no yeah. one's looking at it. Yeah. Like, hey, where's that money going? <laughs> no. <laughs> Where'd you get that money no. from? I don't care. Well, you have to hide it from the cartel. Maybe not the police, but like you have to have some sort of front, like to make it look like legitimate. Maybe. yeah no they have bosses if you like so there's there's the rudy's there's the guys outside who negotiate then you have the midget then the northerner and then the evil guy like there's a hierarchy to this thing and i'm sure the evil guy um answers to a cartel boss or whoever it is like and, and actually they could hear conversations when the evil guy was there about how nothing will happen to him because he has uh, the chief police chief in his pocket you know he's high up and she can tell by their conversation his demeanor that he's not worried about shit he's protected no matter what so you know this also is 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 a job you're right like it is a job they have a foreman they have a half hat they have a general foreman you know just to put it in my perspective of work sounds like a pyramid scheme a very lucrative one very lucrative pyramid scheme very k undercover (laughs) (laughs) so the next one to come in after rudy one left was rudy two and when he walked in he said something about how much he loves it that she's just always here waiting for him to come back you know perfectly well that i can't see you and i don't wait for you do i have to remind you that you kidnapped me and i can't leave her sassiness didn't bother him. He just told her to hold out her hands and he placed a bunch of fresh roses. And when I say a bunch, I mean like 60 fucking roses. And the crazy thing is she actually got excited because they smelled good. Do you like them? I bought them with all of the love I feel for you. What? Yes, Ernestina, I love you very deeply. You've got to be kidding me. This is insane. No, mi amor, this is not a joke. I love you. Listen, I am not your love or anything else. You and your friends have kidnapped me, and that is an act of hatred, of pain. You cannot talk to me about love, so please leave me alone. Just go. Hey, understand. Calm down. I, I, I don't know what's happening to me, but I know 
I'm going to pay for. Rudy, too, leans in and rubs the back of her neck, then leans in and kisses her neck softly. Then he apologizes again and leaves the room. With Rudy, too, out of the room, she opens her eyes and sees all the beautiful flowers in front of her. And even though the circumstances is fucking weird, she can't help but feel joy and love when she sees those flowers. She, she sees it like it's a sign from God that real life is still out there and she needs to hold on. Then Rudy, one, comes back in the room. Wow, wow. Look what we have here. We have a real-life Romeo in the house, don't we? I wonder what the boss is going to say about this. You've been a real bad girl, haven't you? No, I haven't done anything. He's the one who's doing this. I'm a decent woman, and I don't like any of this. And that is how Rudy 2 became known as Romeo among the crew, and I will stop calling him Rudy 2 now. He is now Romeo. Or in the book, Romeo. It's not Romeo in the book. It's Romeo. Romeo. So it only takes about 60 roses to win any girl over, apparently. He didn't win shit over. No. <laughs> hey, hold on. We're still fist fighting. She felt joy and love when she saw those flowers. Yeah, the flowers. Not okay. Not that stupid fuck who did it or yeah, gave them to her. It's a, it's a, he's playing the slow game. <laughs> Super he's got nothing slow. but time. Yeah, he's, he's got, got nothing but time in the world. He's got a captive audience. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> wow. That was really good. <laughs> wow, she just won this whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> so the next time Romeo comes in, he brings fancy champagne and snacks and once again confesses his love for his victim. This time, however, he says a whole lot more than just, I love you. Don't be afraid. I won't do anything you don't want me to do. Want to know something? My real name is Danielle. Are you surprised? Well, now I'm in your hands and you can do whatever you want with me. I'm 26 years old and I'm in the car washing business. They sit there together while he just goes on and on. Then he pulls her closer so that her head is in his lap and he's just caressing her hair while he talks and talks. He gets up, picks her up, and leans her against the wall. Can I kiss you? Fuck no. Oh, cool. Okay. That's fine. I won't do anything you don't want me to do. But even after saying that he won't do anything she doesn't want him to do, when he leaves, he still kisses her goodbye and slips her the tongue. Gross. Oh, that's so disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it makes my stomach hurt. He's like, okay. I'll do it anyway. Play hard to get. Now, the reason that I'm giving so much detail about this part of the kidnapping with Romeo and the weird fucking shit going on is because it's, to me, I know you we've already talked about how it's just like a job to them, but it's just so bizarre that there are people out there that are so dense that they really think that someone they are actively fucking kidnapping would, would ever or could ever fall in love with them. I mean, there is this thing we are all probably super familiar with called Stockholm Syndrome, but just... In case you're not, here is Debbie to shed a little light on it. Okay, so we've probably heard of the word or the term Stockholm Syndrome. And it was actually a phrase coined in 1973 by a criminologist in, wait for it, Stockholm, Sweden. Oh, didn't see that one coming. To uh, explain the feelings 
that a girl had for a captor of hers in a bank robbery. And all it is, is it's an explanation for the reactions of hostages in certain situations. It's not a diagnosis. It's not in the, in the DSM. It's just an emotional response to either captivity or abuse. And what's so interesting about it is usually when you hear the term Stockholm Syndrome, you think of this like kidnapper, you know, kidnappy, mm -hmm. but it can also be found in child abuse, sports, like, you know, how kids or young people have an abusive coach, like uh, mm -hmm. Jerry Sandusky comes to yes. mind. If I'm, you know, in Pennsylvania, I'm real familiar with that. Domestic abuse, sex trafficking, all of these situations can cause, and, and I think it's mainly a defense mechanism, where in order to save yourself from trauma, that you're protecting yourself by imagining some relationship that you have with either your captor or your abuser to it's like a way of self-preservation so after this period of captivity or abuse or whatever it is ends usually the person has some kind of ptsd and well we'll probably talk about that later on but she goes through uh, what you would call PTSD, like some, she calls it emptiness and depression. And of course, all the feelings that, you know, you would expect, like, you know, now I'm free and I've had this traumatic experience. What do I do? How do I act? Yep. Huh. Yeah. It, it has to be something that you're saying. Uh, to make the situation palatable, to be like, yes. I'm not being abused. This is someone I love. This exactly. is our relationship. Exactly. It, it, it makes is... it appear that you have some kind of choice that, you know, that, that you're, it's just, it's a defense mechanism. Like, um, and you said it's not diagnosable. No, it's not a diagnosis. It's, it's just an ex explanation of the behavior or the emotional situation. And in this case here, this, I mean, obviously, Ernestina doesn't have the feelings towards her captor. And um, Romeo, I was, when you first told me about this case, I was thinking that it was a, an instance of Stockholm Syndrome in reverse. Mm -hmm. He's just a horny bastard. Yeah, he, he just she's there. She's attractive. And he's just like wants to get it on. End of story. I mean, there's no he's like, oh, I love you. I love you. Blah, blah, blah. But it's not a true, you know, an, an honest like, you know, I've fallen in love with this person. It, it's not at all. It's just uh, more kinda, of an opportunity. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just. He just wants basically to use her. I think he is taking advantage of the situation and he probably doesn't love her. Probably he might because he seems so fucking delusional. Um, so he might have some feelings, but I think it's more like 
Um, I, she's there. There's nowhere she can go. Um, I might as well at least uh, make her think I'm nice so I can get what I want. And he's he's very delusional. He's like, oh, you know, you love me. And, and, this, and meanwhile, she's just trying. The very little that she gives him is basic self-preservation. You know, like right, trying not to upset filming. him, right? Yeah, exactly. When this the point where they have, I don't want to skip too far ahead, where he does rape her. I don't want to use the word have sex with. Right, no, it's not. And she only does it because she wants to live. It's and he kind of sees it as, oh, she wants me, you know. Yeah, he's fucking delusional. He is. Yeah, but he's probably. Again, this being a business, seeing a lot of women come in. So I wonder if this is a thing he does to every single one of them. Every single one that he sees and tries to. You know about the princess. Yeah, I mean, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? So. Right. Jesus. The only way he can get women at all, like get any action at all. Well, this is is, uh, like shooting at a little tyke's basketball coop. Uh, hoop though like it's you're gonna make it like it's because it depends of the on how big your ball is might not make it well it's because of the implication yeah so it's it's guaranteed you're gonna make this shot yes it's because I'm, of the implication i put fish in a barrel and then i shoot at them no you put dynamite in it. <laughs> yeah you put dynamite in that barrel yeah. you're gonna get at least one fish yeah <laughs> Yeah, I just yeah. think it's a, a he just sees an attractive woman that he has kidnapped. He's like, oh, let me see if I got a shot here. But going go back to Stockholm Syndrome real quick is I was wondering is um, leaving a cult a form of Stockholm Syndrome because it takes forever to deprogram. Uh, I don't think it's really the same. I, I no? There's a, like a whole psychology behind that. Mm-hmm. And I I that's more I brainwashing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Or a gang, you know, a street gang. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it like the same thing because they entered that by choice. You know, even if it was, they say they were, um, uh, whatever the word is, like brainwashed. Mm-hmm. They still at some point made the choice to enter this cult, this cult or gang. But with the kidnap people, they it, it was totally not. Well, people choice. who are born into it don't necessarily get the choice, but those are typically the people who have the hardest time breaking away from it because yes, I know they you're talking about Scientology. Choice. I know you're talking yeah. about Scientology without saying it. That, but also other religions. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, even even like you know Mormons. So I don't mean to offend any Mormons, but. You know, they, they say that they, uh, I'm, I'm going to put my headphones on because the sound for some reason got all weird. Yeah, I all heard it time. too. I heard it too. Hmm. But yeah, it's just this, they talk about Stockholm syndrome in the book because it usually that happens, right? But it's the re, kind of the reverse, but again, it's not, I think, um, Romeo is just a dirtbag, but, um, oh, you don't say yeah <laughs> you will <laughs> what what <laughs> i mean i did not you, kidnap you're... women and try and give them roses <laughs> and sleep with them not that we can prove 
No. Yes. He just says the, the roses. Statue of Le- yeah, I'm waiting for the Statue of Limitations to go away. <laughs> <laughs> so one evening, the crew comes barging in and puts a blindfold on and forces her out of the room without a warning of any kind. They roughly escort, escort her into the trunk of a car and drive off into the night. They don't tell her where they are going, and she has no idea if they are taking her to a different location to kill her. I mean, at this point, her imagination is running wild. They, they just tore her out of her bed, and now she's in the trunk of a car. The car comes to a stop, and the trunk flies open. And while she's still laying in the trunk, they hold a phone up to her head, and she can hear the sound of Laura's voice on the other end. It was an incredibly short phone call, and the whole time Ernestina begged Laura to sell all her properties and all her valuables to get the money. Anything. Just sell stuff. Get the money. And anything they're asking for. But Laura doesn't have good news because it turns out she can't sell any of Ernestina's stuff without her signature. The last thing Laura heard was her sister telling her that if she doesn't make it out of this alive, she will blame her for it forever. The phone was taken away and the trunk slammed shut. So just like you were saying earlier, Will, like Ernestina's finally drawn that line. Like, if I don't make it out of this, this is your fucking fault, Lada. This is on you. This is now on you. No pressure. <laughs> make it happen or I'm dead and I will haunt you in the afterlife. I would definitely. Okay. Tough situation for both of them. I mean. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I didn't. I should have gone it, into it. Is it? Yeah, because I should have gone into it, but um, when I was talking about how the family is also affected, uh, they go into, they experience something called suspended death, where they don't experience a full-on death, but they might as well be, you know. They're unsure whether they're going to get their loved one back, and that stress causes a lot of trauma, emotional trauma in the family who has to deal with it. Because sure, the person's not actually dead, but there's no guarantee that they won't be. So it's almost like they're counting down to the moment that they are. Yeah. And I think I think it would be the same like if you have like you know, a kid that's gone, it's like are they did they run away? Were they kidnapped? Were they killed? It's it's like you know, I think I think the not knowing would be worse. Yeah. Then it's mm-hmm. like you know they're dead, you can like accept it and start the grieving process and get on, but that that not knowing is it's got to be awful. We just talked about this the other day, Octavia, when I said I know. if I was kidnapped <laughs> or if I was missing, quote unquote missing, and you said, how long have you, I said, would you remarry or would you sleep with someone else? And he said, yeah, he said depends on how long I had been missing. How? I, I, there's no way unless I knew for a fact you were fucking dead. You said two years. Two years, you guys. Do you know that? I have to be missing for two years before this fucker is going to move on. That's a long time. No, it's not. That's Two a long years time. missing for That's a long no time. closure to have your spouse be out there, the mother of I your told children. You, statistically speaking, you're dead. I don't the give a fuck about your you. statistics. Your yeah, statistics are you. shit. After six you're months, you. after six mm-hmm. months, written off. <gasps> William, <laughs> both of you. I bet married. you guys just quit looking. <laughs> exactly. Depends on how much money like, I have. A week. Mm, she's yeah. gone. Bye. Next. No, but it wasn't, Ariana. Uh, on a more serious note, like that, that whole you know suspended death. Um, it just reminds me of like September 11th, where um, oh, yeah. you see all the the missing posters of hundreds and hundreds of people that their loved ones are like, we 
we don't know if they're dead, but we can't find them. And you have they have to know at some point, like, they're probably dead, but we're holding out a little bit of hope. Mm-hmm. But how do you come to terms People with that? People still today, like, say that their loved one is missing and they've not been seen and were last seen in some sort of 9-11 related incident, but they're still not listed as dead, you know, like to their family. Yeah. Their names are on some sort of monument somewhere because they're still missing, but they're not dead. Their bodies are never recovered. I just can't imagine living with that. Well, at one yeah. point, at what point do you have to accept that you're they're dead? Well, I'm a I don't skeptic, know if there's a, so I don't know if there's a certain point. I think I it's, yeah, never, it's, it's individual. It's but feel, there, there has yeah, yeah there feel. has to be a point where either you're just going to hold out for the rest of your life, looking for them, thinking they're still missing, or come to terms with. No, there's a gr- very good likelihood that they're dead. Yeah, and let's. I would think that they've tried to move on, start another life. I don't know. That's just my brain. Well, I, would I mean, think on a not so on a not so serious note, like nine <laughs> eleven. Uh, think about um, think about the Avengers. The the snap. Five years they were gone, and then all yeah, of a sudden that's... they come back into their life. I mean, but that's like completely different. Like, you know, those people are like, they weren't snapped and like, you don't know where they went. They were snapped and like, they're gone. Like, you know, they're gone, gone. You don't ever expect them to come back because they're gone. Or I think okay. at that point it is safe to move on. Don't you? Not, not so fantastical. What about Castaway? He was gone for about two years, wasn't he? I've never seen that movie. I don't know. Tom come Hanks on. is gone for come about on, two years. Wilson. Oh, that's a tennis ball, dude. No, that's a volleyball. But anyways, he was gone. I, I mean, think in that whatever. movie, it's super, super sad because he, he is just on an island. No one knows he's just on an island. He's dead to them. The wife moves on, has a whole other family, and he comes back, and he just has to accept it. Outer Banks. Yeah. The dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could probably go on and on about. On and on about different examples. But uh, <laughs> So after this little car ride in the trunk, they arrive back at the safe house, and she's pulled out of the trunk and thrown against the wall. You see, you pinche pendeja. I told you your family was going to let you die. They don't love you. They haven't got the money together. So, you see, they don't give a shit about you. I should just kill you now. The next thing she feels is a gun pressed up against her head. And the feeling of the gun against her head causes her to snap. And she reaches up and grabs a hold of the barrel and hits it against her own head over and over. Look at me, you idiot. Look at me. Kill me now. Yes, now. And don't threaten me anymore. I'm sick and tired of you people. You're all pathetic. Always together, all the time. You think you're all tough, but you're not. <laughs> wow. This lady sure has <laughs> balls. And that was uh, Wario, everybody. Wario. <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah, so uh, they... In this moment, she kind of—that's crazy. She fucking went ham like quick. Well, I, well, not I left quick, a, but... a tiny bit out of the phone call. So, I, I, everything they said, I, um, everything they covered, I said. But the feeling she got was, uh, she knows her sister. She knows that she could have easily been like, "Hey, don't worry, we got this handled. Everything will be okay." But she didn't. She said, "I don't know. It's hard." Like she gave her like non answers, you know, instead of being like, yeah, we got this. And so she knows that her sister doesn't have shit. She's not close. So she read between the lines on that. So knowing her sister and knowing what she said, she's like, fuck it. Pull the goddamn trigger. Yeah, get it over with. I don't want to play this game anymore. I'd have been the same way. Except two like t- minutes after I was kidnapped, that's what would have happened. Yeah, I think Except you would have like actually 20- like grabbed the trigger and just pulled it yourself. 
No, I would never do that. I would have shot his ass Mm. or just made him shoot me. Yeah, just his ass. Um, (laughs) I think uh, think we're at 26 days around there of of this life. Yeah, I think we're about 26 days at this point. Fuck that. Oh, my God. That sounds the worst. So the day after this happens, nobody comes to see her. No Rudy's come in to give her water um, or food at all. So by the end of the day, as she's literally dying of thirst, she has no choice but to drink out of the toilet just to keep herself alive. I mean, and if you flush the toilet, it's it's clean water. I guess it's just the the degrading nature of having to do that. Uh, Oh, yeah. The point of that is, it's just like, this is what she's been reduced to. Three days, five days, something like that without water. Mm. Uh, Three days without water, five days without food. All right. Well, there you go. She's not dying by the end of the day. Sorry. No way. And then the day after that day, she's still, no one comes to see her still. She's not given any food or water again. And really at this point, she's just grateful to be alive. Yeah, this that's all she's thinking. She's drinking out of the toilet, like at least I'm fucking alive. Um, and then finally on the third day, Rudy f- shows up with breakfast. And that same day, Rudy is the only crew member in the building because the rest of the guys went out partying into the night, celebrating something the midget accomplished or some shit. I don't fucking know. I think he was uh, sober for like four years or some shit. So now he's breaking that. Like he wanted to go four years without drinking or some bullshit. Now he. He did it, so he's partying. Oh, I don't know, but everyone went except for Rudy. Um, and the thing is, this doesn't really bother Ernestina because with just Rudy there, it's quiet. The TV's not on, the radio's not on. It's just Rudy and her. And even though Rudy makes it clear, I'll fucking kill you if you try to escape, uh, she's like, that's cool. There's no noise because it's been about a month of just straight, constant noise. And so she's like, that's totally chill with me. So she just went to bed like at 10 o'clock, just calm. But then she was woken up at about four in the morning by a knock on the door. She hears the voice of Romeo asking if he can come in. When he comes in, it's obvious he's fucking shmammered and flat out tells her that he wants to make love to her. She obviously protests and begs him not to because if he does, that would be rape. She makes it clear like that we wouldn't be making love. This is going to be rape. I this just, anger's. Oh, sorry. I was just going to laugh at the fact that he asked if he could come in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I come in? Yeah, I know. At, at four in the morning, she's dead asleep. Yeah, it's it's again that three a.m. text. Hey, you up? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> so, Harris say, stating outright that this is going to be rape. It angers Romeo, and he grabs her by the neck. You listen to me. All the guys are hot for you, so now you decide. You either do it with everyone or just me. If I make you mine, nobody can go after you because we have rules about that kind of thing here. Feeling like she has no choice, like a rock in a hard place, she agrees to have sex with Romeo because the alternative is a gang rape. And that's that's way worse than just regular rape. Uh, so, yeah. She, uh, at least with him, you want to believe that it would be more um, gentle than a bunch of random guys that quote unquote don't love you. Mm-hmm. Or haven't like, professed like he does. Like 60, 60 rows low for Yeah. So I guess it's the better alternative. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's not I, I don't know what. I'm just saying. Right. 
It's like voting the... for a president. Yeah. <laughs> Loud have mercy. No matter what's going to happen, you're still going to get fucked. So, um, <laughs> so she tells Romeo that she will do it with him because, like, in the thought of she's just thinking, like, I, I'm not going to survive a gang rape. I'm not going to. So she's like, okay, the the obvious choice here, as shitty as it is, is just to agree to Romeo. And she tells him we can do it as long as he wears a condom. And then, you know, she's begging him not to hurt her. Romeo says, "Condom? Never heard of her." Um, but Jesus after some Christ. after some begging, uh, you know, convincing her like, please, please wear a condom. Uh, she gets him to agree because he's tired today anyway. You know, he's drunk. It's four in the morning. Uh, so he's like, fine. But tomorrow night, I'll be back with some condoms, and this is going to happen. I wait. So he didn't have sex with her. Not, not that, that night. No. Not no. that morning. He didn't have a condom. He didn't have a condom. Plus, Which, he was tired. He was super drunk, up all night drinking. Okay. I don't want to offend any Hispanics, but they have condoms in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's WalMarts and shit. Yeah, they don't. They don't buy them. They probably expire by the time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I said never heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> it's like Mormons, right? Yeah. I don't know what that shit is. <laughs> so you're saying in Utah and Mexico, they're all expired. Yeah. <laughs> expired. That's awesome. No offense, though. Yeah, no offense. Oh, probably, yeah. Thank you for clearing that up this time. <laughs> no problem. So the next night comes around. And Romeo comes back in with a fresh shave, good smelling aftershave. His breath is minty fresh. And I imagine he had on some fly clothes. He was trying to impress, which doesn't make sense because she can't see him. She's fully blindfolded. But it's the effort that counts. I don't know. He's trying. You look good. You feel good. Yeah. He wastes no time and begins kissing her. And even though in his head this is meant to be romantic, Ernestina can't understand how Romeo doesn't understand that this is a rape. He is just not computing. He continues undressing her, lays her down, and a line from the book really stands out here. And so he continues living out his fantasy inside my nightmare. After it's done and he leaves, she goes to the bathroom and takes a cold shower and scrubs herself clean as hard as she can. It's sad. Yeah. Be in that situation? Nah. Mm. Yep. I mean, that, that line, I put that in there because it's, this is his fantasy. This is all fabricated. This is straight up fantasy. None of it's real. None of it. And this is a nightmare for her. Like it, it the sums only it thing up she can so do is, good. is lay there and fuck like a dead fish. And that's the only thing I can think of that would be unappealing to fuck face over there. But no effort at all? Yes. Yeah, so I don't think there was many like as much like fighting, fighting it as much as it is just like, all right, I'm just gonna lay hurry here. up, yeah, hurry up, yep, or having zero emotion at all. As much as that would be excruciatingly difficult, like just 
yeah, don't you just, give them any type of emotion one way or the other. Like some people feed off of you being upset. Some people feed off of you being into it. Some people feed off of well, whatever. Yeah. Fear, you know, just. Don't give them anything. Yeah. The next day brings more bad news as the midget pays her a visit and asks if she's been behaving badly, all the while getting super close to her, and he begins breathing heavier. He tells her that he was sent here to cut her finger off so they can send it to her family, but he won't do that if she will have sex with him. And he lifts the blanket up and moves closer to her mouth, which causes Ernestina to literally shit herself in fear. This accident saves her from being put through another rape. And the midget leaves the room disgusted. Noted. Shit your pants if you're ever in this situation. Yeah, that's a... Uh, who does that joke? Is it George Lopez? It's like if his son ever goes to jail, uh, he hopes his son shits himself every day. He's like, he might be smelly, but he's a good boy. You know, because no <laughs> one's going to rape you if you shit yourself. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know about nobody, but it's... <clears throat> But it was yeah. genuinely an accident. She was literally, like, she so literally terrified. shit herself in fear. Like it wasn't like a funny thing. It wasn't like she was doing it on purpose. It was just like she. This was a natural, fearful reaction, and her body saved her life, or not her life, but it saved her from the trauma again. Yeah, essentially, it's when your your body goes into fight or flight, and you just have essentially an emotion dump, and your body said, "We're gonna literal. shit." Literal dump. Yeah. The next day, Romeo comes back, bouncing, uh, comes bouncing back in the room and plants a kiss on her and tells her how happy he is that she didn't tell the boss about what they did just to protect him. He's even more excited that she didn't allow herself to be raped by the midget, and it shows that she, uh, she really cares about her relationship with Romeo. He gives her another kiss and leaves the room, just all fucking fluttery and like, oh my, you're such a good girlfriend. Like, he's just, he's lost in this made up world. It's insane. Yeah. So later that day, the midget returns. The midget returns and tells her to get up because he was serious about cutting off her finger if her family doesn't pay. He pulls her up and puts a blindfold on her, then pushes her against the wall, then makes her sit by hitting her in the head. He grabs her left hand as she's as he's telling her that her finger is going in a cereal box and placed somewhere in her family's house, and they will have to look for it. It takes several of the men to hold her arm steady and they place a towel in her mouth because she's fighting back and screaming so loudly. She feels a prick on her finger and then she heard them say, All right, let's wait till it goes numb. Then they leave the room. While she can feel her pinky finger get colder and numb, she can hear a commotion outside and possibly the sounds of guns being cocked. She starts to hear shuffling around like tables and chairs are being moved quickly. This commotion outside lasts about 20 minutes, which is enough time for the numbing medicine to wear off. When the door flies open, she hears Romeo tell her that he got into it with the crew and the midget, who's his boss, uh, because they were going to do this to you. But he told him that they could have his cut, just don't hurt her. So basically, he is now holding someone against their will for free. But he tells her that he he fought his boss for her and... The hell? Basically, like I, I'm your hero, is the tone. Like she's ex- supposed to, like, oh, thank you so much. I love you. You're the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. <sighs> also, so, what the fuck? They numbed her finger to cut it off, and then they mm-hmm. just acted an ass and they're gonna let it r- numb. The numbing shit wear off, but they were nice yeah, no, enough to numb it. 
Yeah, they were nice enough to numb it, but Romeo came in at that moment and literally fought the midget so that they wouldn't do it. That was the commotion of the the chairs being moved around is them fighting. Goodness gracious. The next night, Romeo steps things up and goes full Hawthorne Heights by playing music outside of her window, except for it's not a radio, it's a full mariachi band. Ernestina is even more confused than ever because she straight up can't believe that anyone is that delusional. But also, he has saved her from harm. So, like, there's this, like, dual feeling, like, he's insane, but also he saved my finger from being cut off. So, like, he's sitting outside of her window with his radio, and it's just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, is this? And then she can't believe that the mariachi would actually. Do they understand that they're playing to a window where there's a captive girl? Probably not, but it's still insane. <laughs> they probably like, do know, they honestly. Have these wandering mariachi bands that you can just hire and say, hey. Oh, yeah. Octavio knows all about those. I, yeah. Uh, every time we go to Mexico, where my when my grandparents were alive, we'd go and there would always be a mariachi band waiting for us to get there. Like we'd all try to, my dad and have one just recently at your grandma's. Oh yeah. Yeah. At my grandma's house. Yeah. They had one come over to the uh, family reunion and play live music for my grandma. But um, on my dad's side, um, they try to time it out where all the brothers would arrive at the grandparents or their parents' house at the same time. So they would have the mariachi band for the whole night. And when every car got there, you know, one after the other, they would play them in. And uh, it would be the the music as they walked in to like hug their parents and brothers and meet every, cool. all the family. Yeah, like their fight oh, song, mm-hmm. their walk on. Yeah, is their entry music. Yeah, so now we have Romeo playing mariachi music for her outside of her window. Um, and so when Romeo comes up to her room, he knocks on the door, but is told to go away. Um, and then she runs to the bathroom and locks herself in the bathroom. This makes Romeo angry, not only because she is flat refusing to speak to him, but it is against house rules to lock the bathroom door. And so he bangs on the door over and over again, but she just continues to ignore him. Then eventually Romeo ends up storming off and she's just left to cry in the locked bathroom. Like this is overwhelming. She's, She's almost about to break is what it seems. Yeah, again, you just have you're in this situation and you have a psychopath mm. trying to woo you i feel like it she would kinda... almost prefer if they were just dicks to her the whole time yeah i think that would be easier like mm. i think this is more psychological torture than yeah just being asshole captors than some guy trying to live out of romeo and juliet fantasy with her i don't know it's fucking nuts The day after that, the midget is back. This time, he wants a list of all the valuables she owns. He wants to know how much jewelry she owns and how much her properties are worth, um, You know how many diamonds she owns, things like that, anything of value that she could sell or give to them so they can sell it. She tells him that she still has a mortgage on her house, so she can't sell it outright for profit anyway. This isn't true, but she is thinking about how she would never give up a home for her daughters. Like, it's not true at all, but she's like, I'm not giving up the house that my daughter's living. They know fucking way. So she tells him that she sells a mortgage to save it. But she does have a ton of jewelry, uh, a lot of valuable pieces. And the midget seems satisfied with the amounts of jewelry she owns because she has like four or five like really big diamond pieces. Then later that day, Romeo informs her that they made contact with one of her daughters and they are going to fetch her jewelry and they might let her go soon. 
Like it might be good enough to just cover the uh, the ransom. He says this with sadness, with a sadness in his voice because he isn't ready to let her go. So he begins kissing her body again, starting at her feet and licking his way up. Oh. He tells her that he's going to tie her up so she can be completely his. He undresses her again and tells her not to worry because he has put a condom on. When it's over, he asks her if she enjoyed herself. And even though she wants to scream that he is a fucking disgusting rapist and she hated every single touch and every single second, she calmly replies, Yes, Romeo. He then asks if he can sleep here with her and take off her blindfold so she can see his face. No, no, I will never look at you. Hey, don't worry, I'll leave you so you can rest. Calmate. <laughs> Once again, when he's gone, she takes a shower to scrub herself raw. That's so <sighs> fucking shitty. God. But again, it's like, all right, it, go for it. Yeah, that was that was nice. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks. Can you leave? I would never, ever give someone a satisfaction. Never. It's self-preservation, like W. Yeah, yeah. No. There, I don't think there was any satisfaction there. It wasn't giving him. No, the, I would never give. It was him just like the satisfaction of saying yes or anything that would make them feel any ounce of enjoyment. What's that? Or get I'd your rather, ass beat or gang raped by the rest of the the crew. So again, rock and hard place. Yeah. yeah. What do you do? The next night, she can hear a party going on at a nearby house, and Romeo comes in and asks if she would accompany him as his date. He tells her it could be fun. You can wear a luchador mask. Nobody will recognize you. And of course, she thinks, why the fuck would I do that? But then instantly, another thought creeps up, a thought of escaping while they are at this party. And as if he could read her thoughts, he said, Titi, I know what you are thinking, but you can't escape even if I take you at all. Don't forget, the first safe house is only five minutes from here, and that gives you an idea of things. We practically own this neighborhood, and we never go anywhere without our sharpshooters. No, no. Now that I think about it, I can't take you with me. And even though she can't go to this party, she still asks Rudy if she could have tequila and a radio. And surprisingly, he says yes, so she still had her own mini party again in the room. And uh, at one point, she... As she hears the actual party going on outside, she almost starts to feel like the party is isn't at a neighbor's house. It's it's at the house she's being held at because she's on the second or third floor, um, sure. and so she's just like, "No, nah, they wouldn't do that. Would they? Have, they have a hostage in the house. Why would they have a party?" <laughs> yeah, but she she's pretty sure that the party was in the courtyard of the house that they're in because they're fucking idiots. Like that's mm. that's how that's why because they're stupid. Yeah, but. Who's gonna? No one's gonna question. They're not. They're not scared of being found out or anything. Yeah, this is their business. They don't give a fuck. They're this yeah, is I mean, an oil he, change. Like he did say, they own that neighborhood. So who in their neighborhood's gonna talk or rat them out? Yeah. So by this point, Ernestina has been in captivity thirty-one days, and ever since they brought up her jewelry and told her she might be going home soon, she asks every day, multiple times a day, when she will be released, and every time. They just say, soon. That's until one day when the midget bursts into the room. We are going to let you go, Sodi. We are not satisfied with the ransom. But this has gotten ugly. I mean, we either kill you or we let you go. They know too much out there and the police are already looking for you. 
Today, we are doing a practice run, and the better prey goes off without a hitch because this is the hardest part of a kidnapping. If anything goes wrong, it all stops here, so get on your knees and start praying. This news makes Ernestina happier than she has been in a long time, and she cannot wait to be free and breathe the air and, most importantly, be reunited with her daughters. Her joyous mood is ruined later that night when Romeo came for his nightly visit. Out of all the bullshit he spewed when he was talking to her that night, the most important thing he said that day is that they will be letting her go Saturday. Aside from that, this I think that's three days from, so this is day 31, yeah, so three days from now is Saturday. And uh, aside from that, the most important thing he said was um, that <laughs> this delusion, this fucking guy, he tells her that on November 22nd, because we're in October, it's like October something. And so November 22nd, a month from now, basically, he will be waiting for her at Bellini's, which is a fancy restaurant at the top of a building. Uh, and he will be there waiting for her. And if she shows, he will know their love is real. And he's like, you won't know who I am. I, I could be sitting right next to you. I could be with a woman, two women, you know, a whole group of people. You won't know it's me, but I'll know it's you. And I will be happy that you showed up. Um. You know, because their love is real, right? Um, and uh, he asks her if she will be there. And even though she's thinking about how fucking stupid this man is, she just agrees. She's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Sure. Yeah, Romeo, I'll be there. But then he goes on to fantasize even further. Who knows? Maybe we'll even get married. Can you imagine it? What would my mother say? And your daughters, do you think they'd accept me as their stepfather? Um, if you're not already throwing your phone at the wall at how gross this guy is, uh, don't worry, it gets worse. Uh, oh, does it? Yes. I can't imagine how. No, it's, 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 it's rough. <laughs> uh, the, in the words of Samuel Jackson, <laughs> on your butts. <laughs> The next day, Rudy comes in and says she will have to be blindfolded all day because they have to come in and out of her room all day getting ready for the pickup and drop-off. The plan is that one of her sister's boyfriends named Arturo is going to drop off the ransom money, and then they will do their sneaky maneuvers and get away scot-free. After the money is collected, they will take her to an undisclosed location and set her free. While the crew is getting everything ready, two new guys will be watching over her. And these guys have not developed a relationship with her like the crew has. So they won't hesitate to blow her fucking brains out should anything go wrong. And the stress of this information and the day itself is too much. And she just ends up falling asleep. Then that afternoon, she can hear the crew is back. And it wakes her up. And out on the patio, it sounds like they are celebrating. Romeo comes in and says that everything went off without a hitch. Chili? That was loud. She says, he comes in and says everything went, out, went off without a hitch. And then he reminds her that he didn't take his cut because he wanted to save her fingers. And now he's here to collect his prize. This time, Romeo is super rough with her and she can't hold back the yelps of pain. This time, he puts his hand over her mouth and says he's sorry, but doesn't stop. Then he flips her over so she's on top and rips off her blindfold. But Ernestina snaps her eyes shut. He tells her he wants her to look at him so she can see how handsome he is. But she isn't falling for it. 
She refuses to open her eyes at all because she knows that all this man needs is a reason to not let her go. And that reason is not going to be because she knows what he looks like. And not even a second after the thought crosses her mind, Romeo says, I can't let you go. Please, Romeo, don't say that. Well, I, I can't let you go. Listen, I was thinking this morning, I'll keep you like a little doll. I'll take care of you and give you everything. All I have to do is put a little chain around your ankle so you can move around. And every day I'll wash you with lotion, your body. Romeo, please, I can't stay with you. Please let me see my daughters again. All right, Titi, don't be like that. I, I just, I wanted to be together forever. Are you sure you're going to keep our date? Yes, Romeo, I promise I will be there. And now you can throw your phone against the wall because that is fucking insane. Oh my God, that's... Ugh. And she knew she it puts she the lotion it. on the skin. Is yeah, what I'm yeah. Thinking of God damn, <laughs> or it gets or the hose the, again. Or else it gets the hose again. You see, <laughs> what were you saying, Debbie? Um, the collector. Did anybody ever read that uh, book? Uh, isn't it's, that a movie um, as well? I saw the movie. It's a movie, I think. Yeah. But there's a Denzel? lot of serial killers, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will I think so? There's Denzel. Um, Denzel. Uh, I'd never saw the movie. Oh, a lot of serial killers. They're not as cultured as you, Debbie. (laughs) Oh, sorry. It's really good book. John (laughs) Files, Leonard Lake, and Charles Ng. Those two fucking. Oh yeah, those are monsters. They modeled their operation on the book, and there was another serial killer, but it was like their fantasy is to keep a woman captive, and. You're talking about the toy box killer. There, well, that was kind of kind. He was kind mm-hmm. of one, and um, like a specimen, like the collector. It was it was about butterflies, I think, and and he wanted like the perfect specimen, and he kidnapped this girl, and he he kept her. He didn't mistreat her or abuse her or anything, but she ended up dying of like an illness. But it reminds me of that. Just, yeah, just this and- fantasy of keeping somebody like a doll or something imagine mm-hmm. grooming someone keeping them and collecting them until you found the perfect specimen and then dying but you can i like how ernestina is like i'm not playing your fucking games i know what you're trying to do like she calls his bluff immediately she's like no i'm not opening my eyes fuck you no i know what this is but still i mean there's no blindfold who's to say she didn't peek you know yeah like at that point he has no reason to believe her like and she has no reason to believe that he does believe her that she didn't actually see i don't know but after that last rape she bathes but this time she doesn't scrub hard like the other times she's just focused on seeing her family again so there's the thought of her is getting her through the rest of the i think she has like an hour or two left cuz when she gets out the midget comes in yeah midget comes in and says t minus 1 hour Later, when the time comes, the crew displays more odd behavior as they all line up to give her a hug and say a proper goodbye. Like, it was it was fun hanging out with you, Ernestina. I'll see you again. Like, take care of you. Like, it's just, they're all like, like, it's like their family and they won't see each other. It's, it's yeah, like she was visiting. Weird. Yeah. I said I didn't have the mariachi band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should have brought it. Yeah, but this is late at night, so they probably didn't want to attract yeah. too much attention. But still, it's isn't it? Where they line up and like take their turns. Like you have a couple family members, like, oh, now it's your turn. Give me a hug. You know, I'll miss you. Is good. 
thank you for hanging out. I don't fucking know. It's weird. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. So then after the goodbyes, she's loaded into the back of a minivan. Um, she doesn't have a blindfold on or anything at this point. It's just like blankets over her head, um, like sitting in the back seat. And it, the, the drive itself is about half an hour uh, to the drop-off point. Uh, during the ride, Romeo is giving her exact instructions about how uh, when they get there, she will keep the jacket on over her head, keep her eyes on the ground. She is never to turn around and never to make a scene. She will hug Romeo as if they are longtime friends and put dark sunglasses on. Then he will leave and she will count to 100 before she even thinks about moving. When they arrive, she follows every instruction perfectly. She doesn't want, she's at the finish line. She's not trying to fuck anything up. But when she steps out of the van, she doesn't feel concrete. She feels grass. Suddenly, she gets the feeling that uh, they actually took her out to a field to execute her. But then Romeo hugs her and sits her down at a bench, and she realizes she's at a park. She can't really count straight. So after a good amount of time, she slowly gets up and removes the sunglasses and looks around and realizes that they dropped her off at a park by a Sanborns just two blocks away from her house. What's a Sanborns? Just a department store in Mexico. Oh. So she starts walking towards a couple that she sees at the park and asks for a phone or if she knows the the direction to a store um, so she can use a phone. Um, But they instead just point her to a store and take off screaming. And she's like, okay, that's fucking weird. Thanks for the directions. And when she gets to the store, the manager and security thinks she's there to steal or cause trouble. And she's not sure why until she looks in the mirror and realizes just how fucked up she is. I mean, she still has that face of droopy face. She's got, um, yeah, she's hurt. She's beat. She's got ragged, raggedy clothes on because she's not wearing the same clothes she was wearing the night of the theater. She's, she just looks like in her words, a drug addict, a homeless person that, and just had it rough. Then uh, the manager brings her a phone. She dials home and tells them she's out. They ask her where she is and tell her not to move. And a few minutes later, she's finally safe in the car with her family. I don't understand why the fuck were those people. Who's going to be afraid of somebody who walks up to them beat to hell and back having a stroke? Uh, have you had a crazy homeless person? Yep. Walk Locked, up to you really. angrily. Yes. yes. Not <laughs> angrily. No. Or in a scary manner. They weren't angry. They weren't. She wasn't scary. She asked for a phone. Okay. Did you give her your phone? Yes. Well, no. I mean, I'm talking about like in my actual job. I've had people. Oh, out. at a hospital. <laughs> yeah. This is not a hospital. This is a freaking store. Yeah, but still, like, okay, you cannot tell me that if someone walked up to you, beat to hell and back, having a fucking stroke, that you'd be like, eh. uh, if they look like a homeless person, I'd be like, what's up, dude? Can I help you? Yeah, give me your I'm fucking not, I'm not going to think like, oh, did you get kidnapped and for th- over 30 days? How could you not? Billiam, this has to change your mind. No. It's such, a small, percent- it's such a small percentage <laughs> of that happening. No. There's stories on Good stories man. of this happening where they get kidnapped or they just survive some sort of fucked up accident and they're in the middle of the street and people are like, I'm not going to try and help this person that looks like a crazy homeless person right well we can't no not right let's have some compassion yeah i would i mean it will be my first instinct to and unless it was 
maybe a dude and it was night or I mean it was something I would think that the woman is being has been kidnapped and released or was being and I would tell think to help her yeah I mean it's daylight you're in a store I mean I wouldn't feel threatened at all a man maybe a little but not a woman I don't think yeah yeah but we're also different like we're thinking about it differently because we know that we're more susceptible to this having yes to have it happen to us more so than you guys so like we're thinking about it in the mindset that this is something that we have to look for daily in our like there are people walking around that we probably have talked to in the past who are being human trafficked and we don't know that so like it's something that you have to be like overly aware of i guess and i just would think that someone being disheveled beaten looking and homeless isn't going to make me think they're scary well, in the aftermath of being kidnapped, um, like Debbie was saying earlier, she dealt with re-establishing herself in her regular life in society in general, um, and it took a long time. Um, so this happened in late 2002, like she was released in October, and she wrote this book um, in 2006. Uh, well, it was published in 2006, and there's an article um from 2008 that says Zapata and her family grew distant in 2006 after her half-sister Ernestina Saudi published a book narrating the experiences of being kidnapped along with Zapata in Mexico City. In the book, Ernestina claims Zapata knew the kidnappers and neither Talia nor her mother Yolanda came to Zapata's defense. So, damn. I didn't get that in the book. I don't remember that in the book at all. That she, I don't know if it was the original version had it, and this is a rewrite. But I didn't. I listened to it two or three times, and I never came across any mention of um, Sodi thinking that her sister wanted uh, Talia or Tommy Motola's money. Like no, there was either. no, there was no inkling of like, like Zapata wanted play type of thing. Yeah, like she was just trying to get her sister's money. Like she was behind it the whole time. Um, but the thing is that the, I don't even know if they, I really don't think they ever reconciled, um, ever. I really don't. Uh, especially after their grandmother passed away. I don't think that they was, did either. I don't, I couldn't, I, I could be wrong. If you know the answer to this, okay. let me know. But everything I've seen so far, they never reconciled. But the thing is like she, Ernest, I, again, it, it wasn't my version, but it could have been in the original. Uh, Ernestina claims Zapata knew the, knew who the kidnappers were. And the thing that caused strife was that Talia and her mom didn't say, you know, she never came to their defense. She was never like, no, she doesn't know the kidnappers. They were just like, mm, maybe she knows the kidnappers, you know. So, well, the thing that that makes me think that maybe there is something to that. You know how they got them? They were coming out of the theater and they mm-hmm. were like they had it real organized. There's like the garbage truck and there's these cars here and these cars here. How did they know? that they were going to be at the theater. Yeah. And uh, the yeah. other, to that point, uh, she was, she convinced her sister to get in the car with her. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause she was going to be in a different car. That's true. Right. She got yeah. in the other vehicle. And again, it's that and, quote unquote butterfly effect. But if there was a mastermind behind it all, then it takes that out of the question. And it's like, no, this was, yeah, this was orchestrated. They actually never disclosed how much they paid to free them or free her. They never disclosed how much they paid. I thought they didn't pay an amount. They gave the... No, they said that they weren't satisfied with the ransom. So that's why they took the... No, that's why they took the items because they weren't satisfied with the amount. 
Um, but I was talking to my mom. I asked her, you know, every time I do a Mexico episode, I call my parents and ask them what they know about the case or what they he- remember hearing. And uh, my mom, surprisingly, I didn't expect it. She said that, oh, yeah, uh, Thalia's sister was kidnapped. But actually, they don't know if that's even true. Like, that's what she remembers of it. Yeah, she said that the the drama was that it was never really proven. I was like, what do you mean? Like, she wrote a whole book. It's like, I don't, from what I remember in the gossip, I don't even know if it really happened. Wow. I mean, I, I, mean, I think it did happen. So she's like, just trying to live out a telenovela? I don't know, man. It's crazy. Or trying to get money. Like a, yeah, from, yeah, exactly, for a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I mean, all these stories you hear, like, um, what's the one? Sybil, you know, that turned off oh, to be yeah. a hoax. And um, I can't think of somebody saying the, the minds of Billy Milligan is a hoax. And it's like all these big things, like books and movies. And it's like, wow, this is. And then, like, years later, you find out it was all bullshit to get, you know, book. Well, the Amityville Horror is like a. Yeah, the Amityville is a huge. Everyone. Uh, the, the Wait, that's Warrens, fake? The Warren. No, the, the DeFeo house is real. The Warren Probably. storytelling is not. The, well, the, the DeFeo Warren. murder house. The DeFeo murder house happened. Yeah. Uh, the Warrens, all of that is. The all of the Warren shit is. Too. Yeah. Anything with hearing shit behind me now. I'm freaking out. Warrens in it. Yeah, anything the Warrens did was not real. Yes, thank you. Yes, exactly. All I do is that couple that makes like all conjuring. Okay, Mm -hmm. those people and like the Mm -hmm. devil made me do it kind of people. Yes, those people. That was all bullshit. Yes, Mm -hmm. everything they do, everything they're involved in is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, I don't believe in any of that shit anyway. But still, what the hell? Yeah, we got lucrative uh, book deals and movies out of it, like. Are they still alive? No. No. No, they they both. I did an episode on, um, uh, what do you call it? The Conjuring 3, which it was funny. I, I was literally working on the episode. I mean, I just kind of came across it. I didn't even know at the time that this movie was coming out. It was Conjuring 3. And it was about that Arnie Johnson, the guy. Who oh, we, yeah, we did an episode on that too. Yeah, we did a, we did yeah. a watch. Uh, basically, we watched the movie and then. Oh my god! The devil made me do it. One? Yeah, yeah. We we watched the movie, then compared it to the actual oh. case. And in the movie, we realized that there is a definite like like spot where they stopped any kind of remotely close to the truth storytelling. Yeah. And it just, I think the part where the church or the court asked them mm-hmm. to prove the haunting or was completely fabricated because they weren't even allowed to testify in court. They weren't. The court never asked them to do shit. So right. the, in the movie, they're like, oh, the court's like, I need you to go out there and prove that it's, it's real. No, they didn't. Ask, they, they wanted them as far away from the case as possible. Right. So, and, yeah, that, that was, um, I did a little bit more research into them and I found out, I won't go into it because it's kind of long, but it's in the episode that I did. It's like, I think it was like April or May or something. Warrens are dirty. We're dirty. There's like shit on them that I. There's found. an author that regrets working with them. What's it? What's that guy? Jans? The guy who did Amityville. James. Right? Yeah, he regretted completely mm-hmm. even collaborating with them because he didn't yep. agree with what they were asking him to write. Yep. Yeah. Well, if there's uh, anything else you want to plug any, about your show, where we can find you, and uh, um, True Crime University, you plug? it's everywhere that you get podcasts. You know, so. Um, do once a week. I'm once a week every Thursday, and I'm 
coming up on my 100th episode, which I can't Ooh, believe. Oh, congrats. Thank you. And uh, I think that's because I have a habit of not so much now, but I would put up multiple episodes, like, you know, like four parters in two weeks or something. And plus I have wow. the chat ones in the programs that I have. They number them as episodes. So even though it's not like a whole literal episode, it's just me chatting. It'll still call it one. Mm-hmm. So I'm still getting still, that's a lot, of, a lot of content. I'm still getting the number 100. So that's going to be next week. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Hmm. It was a lot of fun being on here. And uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. No, glad to have you. Having me. I know your show is just you, right? Like you have no banter. It's just you. It's just me. And and if Nathan barks or something, (laughs) (laughs) which unfortunately happens quite often, but it chimes in here and there. He has opinions. We're about it. (laughs) Because <laughs> I clearly have a lot of them on this show. Well, opinions are like assholes, right? Everybody has one. Oh, Will. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate thank it. You. Thank uh, you. For it was a lot me of here. fun. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, well, Emily. All right. Well, you guys can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Bloodthirsty Times. Check us out on Twitter and TikTok at Bloodthirsty Pod. And you can email us at bloodthirstypod at gmail.com. Remember, there's a donate button now. uh, Just a $5,000. Yeah. Um, They're not asking for a lot. It's 5K. It's 5K. No big deal. Be sure to check out True Crime University wherever you get podcasts. Uh, Debbie does a good job with all the psychology. It's a lot of fun to listen to her dive into not just what they did, but why they did it. You know, it's a little bit different than our show, and it's a whole different perspective. And I, I actually really yeah. enjoy how you go about it. Thank you. It's a classroom, like you said. It's Professor yeah, Debbie. I try. I try. <laughs> it's a classroom well, where you can eat, drink, whatever you want. There you go. We love those. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We well, hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, bye, everybody. Catch you later. Bye. bye.